0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. All right, turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to wrap up a little four-week sermon series we've been doing before we start in Daniel. We're, we're looking at the Lord's Prayer. Today is our final installment in this little sermon series. Uh, we're calling it Together praying as the family of God. And as I've mentioned multiple weeks previously, you know we've got these eight discipleship markers that we've identified as a church. And so when we do these, 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 sermon, these shorter sermon series between studies of larger books, we really are intentional about seeking to press into areas of discipleship that we want to help us develop as a body. And two of those areas of discipleship that we've identified is authentic worship, marked by relationship, and authentic relationships marked by love. And we believe as we, as we lean into the Lord's Prayer and what it means for us to pray as the family of God, that it really presses into those two areas that we seek to grow as disciples. And so today we're going to look at the sixth and final petition of the Lord's Prayer, but let's read it in its entirety, embedded in the center of the Sermon on the Mount. We pick up in Matthew chapter 9, as Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Or Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. As we've said in previous weeks, this is a pattern of prayer given to us by Jesus. And it begins as we, as the, the family of God, cry out to our Father in heaven. It's a communal prayer because we cry out to our Father. And we've noted in previous weeks the, the plural language in this prayer. This was a prayer for a community. It's meant to be prayed together. That's why we're calling the series Together Praying as the Family of God. And over the last three weeks, we've looked at prayers of adoration, prayers of surrender. Last week, if you were here, Pastor Jeremy walked us through verses 11 and 12, and we looked at supplication, what it means for us as the family of God to lift our requests together in prayer. Supplication is simply asking humbly and earnestly of God. And so last week, as Jeremy walked us through those two verses, we saw that together we are to bring communal supplication practical supplication and spiritual supplication to God. As we pray those two verses in the middle of the prayer, give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then Jeremy summarized the intent of those two verses with this simple phrase. He said, in prayer, we come together to God with our supplications, with our requests. He is the supplier of physical and spiritual resources to human needs, he gives to us so that we can give to others. And then today we get a wrap up. We're looking at verse 13 today and we're gonna look at what it means for us to intercede, what it means for us together to care for one another in prayer. That's why I'm calling my sermon today, Intercession, Caring for One Another Together in Prayer. Would you pray with me as I ask God to meet us in this place? Oh, Father, as we come before you this morning, Lord, you know uh, the journeys each one of us has traveled to this point in time in our lives. You know the 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 thoughts of our heart and mind that are occupying us this morning. God, we pray that we can bring those to you in a very honest way and that right here, right now, that your Holy Spirit would be at work giving us understanding and bringing conviction and opening our eyes and softening our hearts and loosening up our ears that we could hear the truth contained in this prayer that you gave us, Jesus, on the Sermon on the Mount. May we hear and understand and grow and respond in obedience to the truths we sit under today. We we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, When I was in college, I had this old uh, college track coach. His name was Raleigh Greenow. He was 65 when I first started training uh, in my freshman year of college. He was a World War II veteran. He had no cartilage left in his knees. He said inappropriate things every five minutes. He just was this old guy who didn't care what people thought. A legendary coach. And he was a World War II vet, and he just he, and everybody was weak to him. There was no Everybody was weak. And he, he expected people to live up to his standard of strength. And so he was a great coach. I admired him. And I, and I enjoyed training under him. But it was, it was brutal at times. I was a sprinter. And so we had, uh, outside our stadium, we had these hills. And so he would send us as sprinters out to these hills. And he would say, okay, start running hills. It's got about a 200 meter, like a little curve. You're going to go 100%, pull the trigger. And you're going to run intervals. Uh, four minutes rest between... Uh, and you can stop when the first person pukes. And that was common. That was common. And I'm thinking, maybe I should eat sandwiches before, or drink some milk so I puke first so I don't have to keep running. But you'd run until you puke. That, just, that was the mindset. And then for our distance runners, he would, I mean, we were in North Dakota. You, you ever been to North Dakota? It's like 1,000 degrees below zero. It's miserable. It's a horrible place to be. And these guys would be training in the wintertime, and it would be literally like 27 below zero and 64 below zero with windshield and he would send them outside to run. And I'm like, like that, not that dangerous? Like, that can't be right. And his famous saying was, there's no such thing as cold weather, only soft people. That was what he would say. And so that was Raleigh, and, and he was a legendary coach, very, very successful. Um, but I remember going through all that, whether it was running in the cold weather or, or running till I vomited, or just dealing with his tough love, uh, sort of World War II veteran style. And I would think to myself, on one level, is this even legal? Like, can even do this legally? But then I would think, you know, because on a physical level, uh, I was getting tore down. Um, and I think, you know, now that I look back on it, I know what he was doing. He was tearing down muscle fibers so they would build back stronger, so that I'd be bigger and faster and a stronger athlete. But more so on an emotional level, we were learning to endure. We were learning to have mental toughness, to have resolve. But I got to tell you, there were days in the five years I, tr- I ran for Raleigh, that I wanted to quit, many days, days that I wanted to give up, days that I thought my coach was potentially just a sadist, uh, and that he wasn't for me, and that he was actually in fact against me. Otherwise, why would he put so much suffering into my life? Have you ever thought about that when it comes to your relationship with God? Has there ever been a season in your life where you've asked, maybe to God, or maybe to yourself, or maybe to someone in the room with you, God, are you really for me? Because today, it doesn't feel like you're really for me. It feels like you're against me as I endure utter exhaustion, as I endure a long, eternal winter in my soul. God, why have you put such suffering in my life, suffering that is tempting me to turn away from you? In fact, the kind of temptation that we just prayed in the Lord's Prayer that he would lead us out of, William Barclay famously says, temptation is not so much the penalty of manhood as it is the glory of manhood. It is that by which a man is made into an athlete of God. So the same way in which running eternal hills or running in the cold weather broke us down to build us back stronger, the temptations that befall us as Christians that cause us at times to question, God, are you really for me? Or are you really against me? They're actually intended to bring strength that we might be an athlete of God. Like an athlete overcoming exhaustion or exposure were made stronger and better as a result. The temptations we endure and learn to entrust to God, they make us stronger and better for his will. It is that by which you and I are made athletes of God. So, let us for a few moments look at this one verse, this 13th verse of the Lord's Prayer. Our, to our Father in heaven we pray, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. And so, as we've kind of given a, a brief overview in previous weeks, there are, there are six petitions to the Lord's Prayer. The first three petitions are, are, are vertical in nature, and they're concerned with the glory of God. And the last three petitions of the Lord's Prayer and the second half of the prayer are more horizontal in nature, and they're more concerned with human well-being. And so, as I, I heard another author use this comparison this week, and it made sense to me, and it was like, he said, think of the Lord's Prayer as a ladder. The, the first three rungs are in heaven, And the bottom three rungs are here on earth. And we begin the Lord's Prayer by considering the fatherhood of God, our Father in heaven, and then the first petition, hallowed be your name. That's the first rung of the ladder. Uh, Your kingdom come, that's the second rung of the ladder. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the first three rungs are in heaven. They're heavenly prayers. They're they're God-oriented vertical prayers. And then as we get down to the bottom half of the ladder, as the top half reaches to heaven, the bottom half descends to earth. The fourth rung of the ladder, as Jeremy uncovered for us last week, is concerned with practical needs. Give us our daily bread. You know, bread being a staple for survival. Give us the things we need to survive, God. The fifth rung is also an earthly rung concerned with forgiveness. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive those to whom are indebted to us or those who have sinned against us. And then today we come to the sixth and final rung of this earthly portion of the Lord's Prayer. It's concerned with protection From evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So that's the structure of the Lord's Prayer. All six petitions are lifted to our Father in heaven. It's this intimate and yet reverent petition to a God who is both Father and sovereign King. And all the petitions kind of hang on this first petition. The primary petition is the first one we pray. Hallowed be your name. This idea of hallowedness is, is that God is to be recognized as the one and only. There's none other. We, we are to revere God. We're to recognize his sacredness, his imminence, his preeminence. He's to be the one who is the absolute center of our world. He is the ultimate concern of our lives. It is this God who is our Father in heaven is to be hallowed. And he's big enough. And he's... Wise enough to not only be hallowed, to not only bring his kingdom and his will, to not only provide for our daily needs, to not only offer us his forgiveness as we forgive others, but also he is big enough to sovereignly protect us as his children from evil. And we're to pray as such. And so the first thing I would encourage you to write down if you're a note taker is simply this. In the pattern that Jesus gave us to pray, he told us to pray like this. Simply ask God for his protection. Ask God for his protection. Look at the first part of verse 13. Lead us not into temptation. Our Father in heaven, lead us not into temptation. After a petition in petition number five for the forgiveness of past sin, the prayer's sixth petition is for protection from future sin. So what does this request mean? Isn't that kind of a bizarre sentence? It's stated rather bizarrely, I think. Lead us not into temptation. What does that even mean? Well, we, we can know what it, it doesn't mean because of some clarity we have in other places in Scripture. If you turn to James chapter 1, verse 13, James tells us, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Okay, so we got to reconcile what we just read with that truth. As we look at the broader context of the New Testament, at least, we see that it is the role of Satan to tempt. Go back to Matthew chapter 4, the the gospel of Matthew that we're in, we see uh, that Jesus was baptized, and he was led by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness to be tempted. Do you you remember that scene? If you go to Matthew 4, verses 1 through 3, we read that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. And here's the title that Matthew gives to Satan. The tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread, so on and so forth. And yet, at the same time, we can all attest as followers of Jesus, it's clear that temptation is a part of life. Even those of us that have fallen to our knees and we have prayed in utter desperation that God would not lead us into temptation. I, I know because I know that I know that we've all struggled with temptation. There's many of you here today who are in a season of struggling with temptation. This tends to be a reality of the Christian life. So how are we to understand this petition? Well, I think we need to begin by looking at the word temptation here. The Greek word is a, it's a word called pyrosmos. And there, there are two meanings of this word. It occurs 22 times in the New Testament. And there's two meanings associated with this word. One It can mean that an enticement that has the goal of causing someone to sin, the classic way we wouldn't think of the word temptation, or the other way this word is often used in the New Testament is it can refer to a test or a trial of the validity of one's faith. It has both meanings. In fact, one scholar says that 21 of the 22 times this word occurs in the New Testament, it it refers to the latter, this testing of faith, and not this enticement to sin. So I think about automakers who create safety features in their cars, airbags and seat belts and crumple factors. And, and what do they do is before they release these cars out into the market, they do test after test after test to see if the safety features work, to see if it's going to last in the real world encounter with violence and collision. They, they test, test, test to see if it's effective when it's out on, on the road. This is the idea here behind temptation as testing. I, I've been using the phrase in my thought life as I've been Studying this text, especially as it pertains to the Lord's Prayer here, is that I think of it as, as testing temptation. It's a, I, I wrote the words testing temptation in the margin of my Bible. I like how Kent Hughes paraphrases this, this, this sixth petition. Here's, here's what he says in his commentary. He said, in light of that testing temptation idea, thus the meaning of lead us not into temptation is simply do not allow us to come under the sway of temptation that will overpower us and thus cause us to sin. That's the intent, that's more of the heartbeat behind this request or this petition. And as you and I attest to, testing temptations are a part of the life of the disciple, the regular part of the life of the disciple. One commentator, R. T. France, he says it relates rather to the testing experiences which are the normal lot of disciples who try to live accordingly to the principles of the kingdom of God in a world which does not share those values. So when you're an alien or a sojourner like Daniel and his buddies in Babylon, when you're when you're the core values that guide the way you live your life, you're living in allegiance to King Jesus in earthly kingdoms, there's a collision course at play. And there's going to be temptations that want to force you and pound you into living a way that's according to the world's kingdom and not to the kingdom of God. And R.T. Francis' point is, this, this is the life of every believer. These are the temptations we're going to face daily as followers of Jesus. In the opening to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He said, Rejoice and be glad when this happens to you, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then as Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane at the end of Matthew's gospel, he told his disciples, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. This is a part of our life. So listen, when you allow the testing that's inevitably gonna come into your life, when you allow the testing to convince you that God is not with you or for you, that's when testing gives way to the kinds of temptation that cause us to sin. I'm going to say that again because I think it's important that we hear that. When you allow the testing of life to convince you that God is not with you or for you, the pain is so bad, you're having a hard time believing that God is sovereign and God cares. When that's the reality of your life, that's when testing can give way to the kind of temptation that causes you to sin. So often the pain that is meant to test and refine us becomes the means by which we fall into temptation because we begin to believe the lie. But I think of that conniving serpent in the garden, hissing and whispering lies into the ears of Adam and Eve, questioning the character and the word of God that they would choose their own way, turn away from God and turn to him, that's a temptation that we face each and every day. Yesterday, we had our last and final summit Saturday, and we we hiked up to Mount McLaughlin, which is a beautiful, amazing day. And uh, one of the really cool things about that was there's lots of really cool things about that, but about three or four months ago, there was a young woman who was worshiping with us for just four weeks because she was doing a rotation. She is a a physician's assistant student at George Fox University. Her name is Jess. She climbed Pilot Rock with us. She's only here for four weeks, but it just so happened to land on a summit Saturday, and she enjoyed the time. She's an outdoors person. And so then, fast forward three months, I'm halfway at McLaughlin, and I see Jess. I'm like, oh my gosh, hi. I knew she moved away. She's like, yeah, I got the email that you guys were climbing, so I thought I'd come out here and see if I could find you guys and maybe climb with you. And it was great. And she loves Jesus. And we get to the top of the mountain, and uh, uh, Teresa was with us, Teresa Jordan, and we sang uh, How Great Thou Art as a team up there, and we prayed together. And, and, and this young lady, Jess, was there. And I was thinking, you know, I'll probably never see this girl again. Because she's going to move back to Arizona, going to get into her career. I'll I'll probably never see her again. So kind of tongue-in-cheek, but kind of serious. I leaned over, and as we're getting ready to head off the mountain, and I said, hey, Jess, I'm never going to see you again as long as I live. Uh, What's the one thing you want me to know? And she's like, "Um, God is in control. I said, that's really good. That's wise. And I said, okay, there's one thing I want you to know. And it's something I've been thinking about for a lot of years. About two years ago, someone asked on social media, what's the one thing you would tell your... Uh, teenager self, that, you, that, that you've learned in, in age. And it's been this. I've thought about this a hundred times. But, and here's what I said. I said, Jess, here's the one thing I want you to know. Pain is not the enemy. I think so often in life when we are suffering or when we're hurting or when things aren't going the way we feel they should go and we are in pain, we just assume it's the enemy and we sprint to comfort seeking, whatever that may look like, and we fail to miss what God has for us in the midst of the suffering. In so much of the Christian life, our character, our sanctification, our formation as followers of Jesus, is the crucible of that is pain. I was just talk, talking to my mom about this last week. My mom's cancer has progressed to stage four. She's got new tumors in her adrenal glands, and they're no longer gonna do surgery. They're gonna do one more round of of oral and or oral chemo, but really they've just said, Sherry, prepare for death. And I'm talking to my mom last week about that, and I'm just and one of the things she said to me, which blew my mind is that one of the final things she said to me on the phone the other day was, Paul, I just want God to be glorified in my cancer. And it's like, you know, guys, we all have families, right? We all have relationships with our parents. And I love my mom and I honor her. That that came from her mouth is mind-blowing. It's just mind-blowing. And I'm thinking about, and I was texting her afterwards and I'm like, Mom, I said, I just love God. The way you're glorifying God in this. It's like what God has done in your life through the crucible of cancer is unbelievable. And so pain is not the enemy. And the temptation is when we're in pain is to believe that God is not for us and that He's abandoned us. That is not true. So then we have to ask those hard questions Why would God bring us into testing? Doesn't this go against His absolute goodness? I have a quote I want to share with you on the screen by Kent Hughes. Again, I couldn't say it better, so I'm just going to quote Kent in his commentary. I think it's going to be on the screen. The idea is this, Kent says. As we pray this prayer. Lord, preserve me from the temptation that will bring me under its sway and cause me to fall. We cannot help being exposed to temptation and we are not to pray that we will be spared being tempted at all. Rather, we are to pray that we will be spared those temptations from Satan that we cannot withstand. This tempting temptation is how we are shaped as disciples. Consider the bookends of the ministry of Jesus. You know, as I said a moment ago, he was led out into the desert after his baptism. And Satan came to him with the most elaborate and insidious and and evil spiritual attacks ever made, perverting the word of God to try to cause Jesus to turn his back on the will of the Father. But he didn't. Jesus conquered Satan, and he went on to, to, to live out this three-year ministry on his journey to the cross, And then three years later, bookended at the other end of the ministry of Jesus, we see him again triumph over the temptation of the enemy in the Garden of Gethsemane. As he's on his face, as his sweat is as blood, as he's down in utter agony at the reality of the cross looming over him, he chose to step toward the cross rather than flee in a final act of obedience to the Father's will. The author of Hebrews talks about this. If you remember, we studied Hebrews this last year. Do you remember what the author says about the sufferings of Jesus in the book of Hebrews? It's incredible. It says in Hebrews 5, 8, although he was a son, Jesus, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And he's perfect. He's God in, in the flesh, and he learned obedience through the crucible of suffering. It says elsewhere that he was the founder of salvation, and he was made perfect through suffering. So if the testing temptation helped to shape the life and ministry of Jesus who is perfect how much more are the testing temptations in our life needed as we seek to be sanctified and shaped and molded into the image of Jesus and scripture is full of this truth and this reality parents you know this i remember this i remember this moment as a parent praying over my kids. You tiptoe in their bedrooms at night and you're praying for their future spouses and you're praying for their health and you're praying for everything you can think of. And you're praying, God, protect my kids. God, protect my kids. God, protect my kids. God, protect my kids. And then you start to read the scriptures and you read where we're to count it all joy when we meet trials of various kinds. James 1. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness has its full effect that you may be perfect and complete and lacking nothing. And you realize that this true, like, we are shaped and formed and molded into the image of Christ through affliction and through sufferings and through testings, adversities, as some translations say of James 1. And it's like, when you, pray, when you start to realize that truth, that it's actually going to be through seasons of difficulty that God's going to shape your kids more into his image. It's actually, you kind of get in God's way when you're obsessed with the safety and protection of your kids. I know there's lots of nuance to that conversation. I don't mean to speak in massive generalities. But the truth is, like when, you pray over, when I, I learn to start praying over my kids, God, my kids are going to suffer. And I know they're going to suffer. And I know they're going to have really difficult seasons. God, I pray that when those seasons come into their lives, they would learn to look to you, to run to you, to trust in you. And your sanctifying chisel at work in their lives would be deeply at work in the midst of their afflictions. I think of what Paul writes in Romans 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has, given, who has been given to us. So think about that. According to James 1, the various trials of your life, God has used that to shape and form within you the image of Christ. By the testing of your faith and the steadfastness that you've encouraged, that you've encountered, God has used that to develop you through struggle. According to Romans 5, the suffering you've endured has brought godliness and wisdom. You are shaped and formed into the image of Christ by the endurance God produces in you through suffering by which God's character is formed in you. Man, it's easier to preach a lot harder to live. I had a friend in town this weekend who came out for the, the climb of McLaughlin, a friend from the very first church I pastored, in, and uh, his name was Scott. I dropped him off at the airport this morning at 4 a.m. this morning. Come on, Medford. Can we do something about that, please? 4 a.m. I dropped Scott off at the airport. But I got to spend a whole weekend with him, and I knew Scott's story. I was his pastor many, many years ago. And he just kind of retold his story. And it was just so good to be reminded of of God's faithfulness through the testimony of my friend. And he tells of being a a drug addict and an alcoholic, having three DOIs facing prison time and going to rehab in December of 1999 in his mid-30s trying to figure out what life was gonna be about. Was this gonna be his lot in life? Was he just gonna use and drink himself to death or to prison? And as he's in rehab for like the first day, uh, an acquaintance of his that he kind of knew, he gets word that she was in a horrible car accident. And all three of her children were killed, 8, 11, and 14 in the car accident. And so my friend Scott finishes his, his rehab, kind of encounters God for the first real time through rehab. He gets out. And he's in the community um, several months later, and he bumps into this acquaintance of his who had lost three of her children in one tragic car accident on December 23rd, 1999. And they fall in love, and they get married. My first encounter with them was in 2004. I did not know Scott and Denny. They'd been married for about four years at this point, and I was a young pastor in my late 20s. And uh, the first funeral I ever had to officiate had come across my docket. It was a young girl who I knew who was killed in a car accident, 11 years old. And I remember the next day, driving her parents to the funeral home to pick out a tiny casket and plan the most horrific thing you can imagine. And I remember pulling up and I saw this woman who I didn't recognize standing in front of the funeral home. And I get out and I see her walk towards his family and embrace them and cry and love, and it was Denny. Here's a woman who weeped over the graves of her three children in a car accident and she's there to minister and care for and love this family who's grieving over the loss of their child. <sighs> Man. I mean, come on. What an incredible testimony. And then they became a part of my church and I've watched and just ad- with, I've admired this couple for the last several years of not only, and you know, their story is more than this, by the way. Their, their story is more than just the loss of their children. It's more than overcoming drug and alcohol addiction. It's more than, you know, they've done foster care for like 20 years, and it's been beautiful and difficult. It's been heartwarming and heart-wrenching as they've done foster care. It's more than, they've, they've adopted three children. They've, they've, lived, they've served in the church. They've served in all these different ministries. But like, I look at their life, and I look at the way in which all those those painful moments were just these these key these, these Ebenezers along their life journey that God used to, to, to grow them and shape them and mold them through all the mountaintops, but especially through the valleys, through the struggles, these testing temptations that molded and shaped them into the saints they are today. I mean, can you imagine how valuable the wisdom of Denny was as she wrapped that family in her arms? 24 hours after the loss of their child. Can you imagine the wisdom, the, the, the deep well that was, that was dug through tears and lament that she could draw from as she stood in front of this family and ministered Christ to them in the midst of their worst moment? How, how profound that is? And I think of my friend Scott. In the years he's counseled young addicts trying to find recovery. And the deep well of, of, of relapse and DUI and jail and breaking the hearts of the people he loved. But finding recovery, finding Jesus, finding a new life. The deep well from which he can draw when he sits across from someone who's trying to get clean. Can you imagine that? Now think about your sufferings. Think about those most painful moments in your life that you've encountered or maybe you're in the middle of today. Can you imagine the valuable wisdom that you might have to share with others that God has shaped and formed in you through your darkest days? As you know, a couple weeks ago, several, about maybe four weeks ago, we started talking about the idea of trying to facilitate biblical mentorship, life-on-life discipleship at Heritage. And and, and there's a small group at Heritage that's really been doing a lot of work and trying to just create like a, 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 a platform or a means by which Lives can invest in lives and, and biblical mentorship can be happening and, and life on life discipleship can happen as an organic outflow of the body here at Heritage. We really believe that's important for our church. And so last week, Pastor Jeremy kind of unrolled some of the, the logistics of how that looks. And there's these different, there's, you can go to our app and you can, and you can, uh, you, you can apply to be a mentor. And, but it's like, I just, I think sometimes we kind of miss the forest of the trees when we start talking about the mechanism of how we do this. I just want, I want to just share with you, I'm going to paraphrase just what Jacob told me or told Jeremy and shared with me this week about why. Like, think about your life story. Think about, think about the, 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 as you journey down the trail of life, as you're gaining understanding of that journey through all the different turns and, and speed bumps and difficulties of life, think about the wisdom you've attained and think about the path that you're forging that others could benefit from. Here's what Jacob says. He said, what does it mean to be a mentor? Mentorship is simply helping guide a disciple of Jesus down the narrow path of Jesus from a little further on down the path. It's meeting someone for a cup of coffee, taking a walk, or even just sitting together for a couple of hours once a month. It's helping a younger saint figure out how to walk through life in a way that's honoring to God. In order to be a mentor, you don't need to have it all figured out. You don't need to have any exceptional strengths. You don't need to be spotless. Being a mentor in a Christian capacity is really about being the opposite of that. It's knowing that you're a flawed person With a lifetime of failures and sins, and I'll add struggles and testing temptations. And then, by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit redeeming those things through the wisdom and insight you've gained from them by passing it on to a younger brother or sister through mentorship. Think about the the playbook your life is writing and how others can benefit from that playbook. And it's helping someone walk with wisdom the path that you've already walked. It's praying with them and talking things out. It's looking over scripture together, breaking bread. It's providing the wisdom of experience that you've struggled to get to someone trying to navigate those same troubling times. Mentorship is realizing that God is glorified in your weakness and he wants to use you to magnify the name of Jesus on earth through a younger generation. You all have a story to tell. You all have wisdom to share. This should, not, this should be just an organic outflow of the body of Christ. We need to do this. What you have to offer is yourself. You have not been molded, and you have been molded rather by the Spirit for such a time as this. And so we're asking our church, we're asking each one of us to consider what it would look like for you to, to step into a role where you say, you know what, actually... I'm going to give five hours of my month away to walk alongside someone that they might have a traveling companion in this journey. Jacob, are you in here right now? Will you stand up real quick? You guys and see Jacob right there, black t-shirt. So there's, there's, we have an app, and there's a way for you to kind of, there's like eight questions you have to ask. It's not a complex process. We just want to know, yeah, I'm willing to give of myself. I'm willing to invest in the life of another believer. Jacob is going to be in the lobby after service, Dashingly handsome gentleman in a black t-shirt. So find Jacob sincerely. Like, honestly, if there was any ping in your spirit just now, like, you know what? I can do that. I'm retired. I got space. Don't, don't bury that. Please. If you're, if you're a techie, you can go to the app and figure it out yourself. If you just want to have questions, just talk with Jacob. We just really believe as we want to become the family of God, this is so vitally important for us to be a body that ministers to one another. Amen. All right. So when? We, when we pray, lead us not into temptation, we are not so much asking that we will be delivered from all testing temptations because we know that, that conforming to the image of God, part of that is journeying through these seasons of testing. And so when we pray this prayer, lead us not into temptation, we're asking God to deliver us from overpowering temptations. It's a prayer that is aware of our own weaknesses. And so in humility, we ask God for his deliverance. It's with humble and dependent hearts that we pray, lead us not into temptation. I think of Peter that night gathered around the, the Last Supper, the, the Passover meal with Jesus, and as he looks at all of his, his peers, he's like, I don't know about those fellas, Jesus, but I can tell you one thing about me. Uh, I'm the real deal, and I will never flee you, and I will never fail you. You can count on that. Lots of confidence in his own self-will only to find out just a few hours later that he did both things. He both failed and fled Jesus. But thank God for the grace and forgiveness that he extended to Peter in forgiving him and reinstating him. And as we, we preached through Mark like two years ago, and, and you know Mark, very, 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 very likely, it was Peter uh, speaking to Mark. Mark was was, 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 was as the scribe, was writing down the gospel through the eyes and the experience of Peter the apostle Peter. And when you read the, the gospel of Mark, it's, it stands out among the other gospels in the way in which it, there's not a single word in there that's flattering of Peter, not a single word. In the way in which God humbled Peter through his failures and the grace he then received, he realized it is all about Jesus. It's awesome. Thank God for his grace. Peter learned the hard way to pray to the Father, lead me not into temptation, but delivery from evil. Now may you and me, may we as the body of Christ here at Heritage Christian Fellowship, may we learn to humbly pray together to our gracious Heavenly Father, lead us not into temptation. May we say, Lord, preserve us from temptation that will bring us under its sway and cause us to fall. Do not allow us to come under the sway of temptation that will overpower us or cause us to sin. And so we pray, Father, may the testing temptations you allow into our lives, may it serve to grow and mold and shape us into the image of your Son for your glory. And quickly, very quickly, the second point today of the sermon is ask God for his rescue. As in the pattern of prayer that Jesus gave us to pray, we ask God for his rescue. And the, the text here is lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That word evil is is a, a proper understanding of that, a better understanding of that is evil one. Many temptations actually say deliver us from the evil one. And and this is talking about evil personified. It's speaking about Satan. It's not some kind of impersonal, you know, force. It's not it's not some sort of Eastern mysticism idea of of, of bad karma. This is the real enemy of God. It's Satan, the devil. A deceiver, the enemy of God, the father of lies, the murderer, the roaring lion who prowls around looking for whom he might devour. Our adversary, he is the tempter. He is, according to the apostle Paul, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. But we don't need to fear because as we read in this petition, yes, we, we are acknowledging our foes' cosmic power when we pray deliver us from the evil one. But in the same breath, we're acknowledging God's power to deliver as ominous and, and, and dark and, and devilish and lionish as the enemy is, God is so much bigger and he can deliver us. Like a father who, who pulls their child back from a coiled snake and, and provides deliverance, our God, our God has us in his hands. He is all-powerful and he can and he does deliver us from the evil one. When the testing temptations of life have made us vulnerable, Stripped of everything, we pray, God, deliver us from the evil one. Rather than allowing our pain or our trial or our sufferings or the testings in our life to lead us to doubt God's goodness, rather than allowing our weary ears to entertain the whispering lies of the great deceiver, instead, we cry out, our Father in heaven, deliver us from the evil one. We need to pray this as a body. We need to pray this prayer. As the, tempting temptations of, as the testing temptations of this world break us down, as we find ourselves humbled and weakened, as we find ourselves frail and vulnerable, may we together lean upon one another, but ultimately lean upon God and his power, understanding that without his power we cannot stand. And so, that's the Lord's Prayer. Many of you probably grew up in traditions where there was a, a doxology at the end of the Lord's prayer. We've even repeated the doxology that is in maybe the New King or in the King James version of the Bible for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Just real quick, I want to speak to that. Uh that's it, it, those 11 words are a doxology or or simply a way to think of doxology is it's a it's a formal a formula to praise God. But it, if you have a study Bible, no doubt your study Bible has some footnotes in here about why we don't see that in in most modern translations anymore. And it's, it's it's abundantly clear to scholars that that doxology was added later by scribes because the earliest and most reliable manuscripts of the New Testament that we have don't include that doxology. Those last eleven words that many of us grew up saying. Earliest references to the doxology comes from a a, a first century and second century. It was a it was a book called a. a Didache, and it was like a, a manual or an instruction manual for church practice, and that's where we begin to see that doxology attached to the Lord's Prayer. It was, it was a, a, a big part of the church culture, the way the church prayed, and, and then later on it began to get added into some of the New Testament copies, and that's why we have it. And so as you listen to that doxology, for yours is the power, or for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. You know, there's as one, as one scholar points out, there's, there's nothing in that phrase that's incorrect. There's nothing inappropriate in what is said in that doxology. In fact, it's really beautiful. And it makes sort of literary sense when you read the Lord's Prayer. It offers a, a, an appropriate conclusion to the Lord's Prayer. Otherwise, it would end with the evil one, which seems, as one commentator says, sort of cold and cheerless. And so that's why we have, we've kept it. And as we've repeated the Lord's Prayer, we've repeated that doxology at the end of the prayer. And almost certainly wasn't spoken by Jesus as he gave this on the Sermon on the Mount. But these are words that are reflective of the truth of who God is. And they form an appropriate conclusion for this beautiful prayer. And that's why we've kept them. And so here we are. The sixth and final petition. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is to be part of our daily prayers. May you and may we, may us together continually pray this. May we regularly ask God for his protection and his rescue. May we pray this over the church global. May we pray this over our church. May we pray this over our brothers and sisters in Christ. May we pray this over our families. May we pray this over ourselves. Our prayer resource for this week that we've written for you to pray in the morning and the evening, it it, it focuses on, in the morning, a defensive prayer of intercession and on the evening, an offensive prayer of intercession. The morning prayer uh, for the resource we give you this week is, is a prayer asking God to intervene and do what God does in protecting and rescuing us. And then our evening prayers, inviting us to pray in, in offensive ways that God would, would rise people up at all different levels and he would continue to, to move in our city and in our world in a powerful way. And as we're reminded, as we look at the Lord's Prayer, it's, it's communal. And so we've been concluding each and every sermon with a time of communal prayer. We've been taking the last five or ten minutes of every service over the last three or four weeks to, to get the band up here, to circle up in, in groups of two to three or four or, and, and pray together in, in these little quiet prayer huddles around the sanctuary. And we provide prompts according to the pattern of the Lord's Prayer. And we're going to finish with that today. We're going to pray together as the body of Christ today. But first, I want us to pray together as the family of God. This prayer, together out loud. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven